actually was a man who worshipped God to the point that he's described in the scripture. If you'll take out your bulletin, you'll see all of the passages for day, to, today written out for you. Acts chapter 13, verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found a man after my own heart who shall fulfill all my will. A man after my own heart. That's God's judgment. You and I look on the outside. God looks at the inside of a human being. He understands the thinking in our minds, the feelings of our hearts. He said, here is a man who is after my heart. What would it take to be that kind of a man or a woman? I can only imagine. King David became king, and he began his journey of being a man after God's heart, found there in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel the prophet, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending sheep. Samuel said, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so Jesse sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel went on to Ramoth. What does it take to be a man after God's own heart? It takes the Spirit of God residing in the man. It is called the anointing. If you've ever been to any Pentecostal churches in your life, you have heard them talk often about the anointing. It means setting aside. It means personally selecting from the crowd someone in whom you are going to especially dwell the Spirit of God, from the beginning of his being king, resided in the heart of David. I'd like to implant a lifelong memory in you this morning. It is one that has haunted me ever since I saw it, and I want to pass it along to you. It's a little bit therapeutic for me to get a little bit of it out of me and into you, so if you'll take some of it, I would appreciate it. I actually remember one church where I gave them this memory and they put three chairs on the wall and they had them there for years. It was amazing to me. This can actually hang on the walls of your memory and be helpful to you in the future. If you imagine these three chairs, King David was actually born into and began his reign as king in this first chair. It is the chair of commitment. He absolutely knew, loved God, was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And for a period of time was a man after God's own heart. But as life went on and as David's experiences went on, I think he kind of changed chairs there. It started with a lady named Bathsheba. She helped him sit in the chair of compromise. Having been anointed with the Spirit of God, he then learned what it was like to sit in the second chair, the chair of compromise. It's a tiny bit of humor in a very tragic situation. The humor says that Bathsheba was taking a bath. That's when David first saw her. That's the extent of the humor. It's sad after that. It's not a new story. John Edwards just had his name plastered all over creation with the same story. 
It's happened every generation with many, many men and women. He was the king, and so what he saw, he wanted. Now, that is America to a T, if I could describe what's happening in this culture. I, when I didn't have any money, I used to be a window shopper. Have you ever done that? Maybe you're still in that phase. Once You know, you can't afford it, but you at least like to go down to the mall and look at it. <clears throat> a window shopper is somebody who can look at something, realize you can't afford it, and so you can look at it, enjoy it, and walk away. Now, my wife can actually still do that. When we look at houses, uh, she can see a beautiful house, and she doesn't need to have the house. She just thinks it's a beautiful house. Me, I'm, I'm much more like David. I'm, I'm probably sitting in a wrong chair because I not only see it, but I'd like to have it. it or when you go find a, a, a car, once you drive the thing, the salesperson knows you're going to buy it if you drive it and you're in love with it. Okay? You can't just look at it. Now you've got to have it. David saw, and he had to have her. Now, the reason she agreed to it was because he was the king. She only had two choices. Kings were terribly powerful in those days, and David was the most powerful of all the powerful. In those days, David was the most powerful man in the world, and when he said he wanted something, you just said, yes, sir. I can almost imagine the conversation, Bathsheba, this is David. Would you like to come for dinner tonight? And she said, oh, I can't. My husband isn't here. He's in your army fighting. And David says, well, I would like for you to come anyway. Now, she has a choice to make. She can either die or she can go. Which would you choose? The chauffeur picks her up, takes her to the palace. They have a nice dinner. I can imagine David being a smooth talker, a silver-tongued fox, and he says something like this. I thought I was happy until I met you, but having seen you, I realized that I have nothing, and yet I have everything at the same time. If I could just have you, life would be full. Would you stay the night? But remember, she's only got two choices, either stay the night or die. Which would you have chosen? That was the night in which David clearly took up residence in the chair of compromise. And his life was for the rest of his life altered. Six, eight months later, Another phone call comes to the palace. He hasn't seen her since then. My guess is they stayed one night together, sort of a one-night stand. And, and I think if they saw each other on the street, they would try to ignore each other as if they were embarrassed and didn't know each other. But when the phone call came, you could no longer avoid it. The phone call went something like this. David, this is Bathsheba. I'm going to have a baby. His end of the conversation was extremely predictable from the male point of view. Number one, are you going to keep it? Terribly offensive question. But if you're ever tempted with a one-night stand, you will hear that question. Second question was equally offensive. How do you know it's mine? And the underlying assumption is there had to be other men. Chewers. David says, well, we'll work it out with your husband. I'll bring him home from the army. So he brings him home. He says, go stay with your wife for an evening. Enjoy the pleasure of your wife and come and see me tomorrow. He goes home, but Uriah was a man of honor. Now, David, absolutely, it never entered his mind to be honorable because when you sit in the chair of compromise, honor is not an issue. You can't spell honor, much less be honorable in that chair. David didn't understand that 
when he came back the next morning, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, says, I couldn't be with my wife because the guys that I fight with are still risking their lives and they can't be with their wives, so I couldn't be with mine. He says, go back to the battlefield. He goes back, he brings the, one of the generals in and he says, today in the heat of battle, I want, you to send your, I want you to send Uriah out on the front lines with his platoon and at a prearranged signal, I want everybody to withdraw and leave him out there by himself surrounded. And he was killed that day. Now, I mentioned to you, life for him was forever altered that day because now he has lied, he's committed adultery, and he's committed murder. How do you go from being a man after God's own heart to being a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer, all in the same lifetime. The baby's born. David's living with the guilt. The doctor brings a report. He didn't say it's a healthy baby boy. Instead, the report was the child is sick unto death. It's an interesting Old Testament phrase. It means the child is probably critically ill, won't make it. David, for the second time, is unalterably changed. It says he repented in sackcloth and ashes, and if you didn't know the customs of the time, you could pass that by as if it weren't important. What happened in those days, when you sinned, you publicly confessed. You publicly repented. You see, today we're very private with our sins. You can get away with a lot of stuff and nobody other than you and God will ever know. In the Old Testament, it became absolutely public. What happened was you built a little campfire out in front of the house and you put on sackcloth. So instead of royal robes and gold crowns, here is the king of all of Israel, the most powerful man in the world, in front of his own little repentance campfire in front of the house, and he's got this sackcloth on, this burlap sack, and he takes the charcoal that's burned down, and he, he blacks all of his arms and his hands and his legs and his feet and his face, and you couldn't recognize him if it were your son. He's got his face in the dirt. He is begging God to save a child, his child. His first child. Oh God, punish me, not him. There had to be paparazzi in those days of some kind. You can imagine on the front of People magazine or USA Today or the New York Times, there was a picture of this dust ball. And then under it, the, the caption had to say, is this the king you know? You see, when he put his face in the dust, what they did, he had charcoal and burlap, and that's all you could see, and you would take the dust with both hands, and you would throw it in the air, and you can imagine when it came down, if you would do that for seven straight days, you can imagine. Hmm. Is this the king you recognize? The child died after a week. David did an interesting thing. 
seven days of praying will get you into a different place. Being honest with God about who you are and what you're doing will get you to a different place. It says he went inside, he took off the burlap sack, he cleaned himself up, he put on the crown, he put on the robes, and he went to the temple. And there in the temple, he begged God to forgive him and asked him if he could change chairs. And for the rest of his life, David was clearly the king who sat in chair number one. He was no longer the king of Israel. He was something very different. He was the spiritual leader of Israel. No longer so proud of the enemies that he defeated or the bear and the lion that he killed. Far more proud of being the spiritual leader of his kingdom. David had a son. His name was Solomon. It's described there for you in that third group of verses. First Kings chapter 1. He said to them, take the Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gion. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. This is David describing what he's doing for Solomon. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you're to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. David had a son who became the king. His name was Solomon, and he was born in chair number two. You say, why would he be born in chair number two rather than one? It's because he wanted a little bit of God, and he wanted a whole lot of the world. He spent most of his life trying to taste everything there was to taste in the world, with just a touch of God thrown in. Sat in the constant chair of compromise, He, asked, he, he was asked, what would you have from God? And he said, I want wisdom. And so he became the wisest man in the world. So if there were ever a philosopher, if there were ever a thinker, if there were ever an Einstein of that generation, it was King Solomon. Because of his wisdom, he also became the richest man who ever lived on planet Earth. No one's ever surpassed the amount of wealth. His accountants couldn't even keep up with how fast it was coming in. He could buy anything. He had a he had a hundred thousand dollar limit on his Visa card, and it was paid off every month in cash. He had a brand new Lamborghini every summer when they came out. He was he was the epitome of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. If you read his autobiography, Songs of Solomon, here's how he describes his whole life, looking back on it, having tried everything you could imagine to try. He said, "It is all vanity." There's not enough money to fill your heart. There's not enough excitement to satisfy you. There aren't enough relationships to make you happy. It's just vanity. I have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. It is not worth it. At the end of his life, I think it was a little on the sad side. To say that a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world is a really empty life. Why did he sit here? Because he knew of his father's background. This man who started out in chair number one. A man after God's own heart. Who 
purposely sat in chair number two for a period of his life. And then, thank God, he repented and got back in the chair of commitment and spent his life there. But here's what affected his son Solomon. He watched his dad change chairs. And so Solomon decided maybe that chair number two is the right place to live. Solomon had a son. That boy sat in chair number three with God. It's the chair of conflict. There in that last verse, 1 Kings eleven forty two and 43, it says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. And then he rested with his fathers, which means he died. He was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. David sat in chair number one, Solomon chair number two. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, sat in chair number three, chair of conflict, conflict with God. Study his life at all, and it isn't all that long on the throne because he was such a failure. You find that he could barely spell God. In fact, it actually talks about his reign. It says, and there arose a generation that knew not the Lord. Why is that? Because the king knew not the Lord. Because they had no example. There was no leader spiritually leading them. In the beginning of his reign, he lost 10 of the 12 tribes. He wound up with only two, the southern two. It's called northern and southern Israel. It's when the kingdom was divided. And the kingdom, the king that was not chosen was Jeroboam. And he got 10 out of the 12 and... and Fairly sad, pathetic fellow that Rehoboam was, he wound up with two. And after not very many years, he was replaced on the throne. Now, I would remind you that kings were not replaced in those days unless they either died or they voluntarily retired. When you were the king, you were the king. It was good to be the king. You could have anything you wanted. He actually was removed from the throne by his own people. He sat in chair number three. Why is that? Because he saw his father try to have a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world. And so the son had nothing but the world. If you can remember those three chairs, I would like to expand it a little bit because what happens to families also happens to denominations. If families make up churches, then churches make up denominations. And I can tell you that what happens in families also happens in denominations. There is a great book written by Lyle Schaller. Lyle, Lyle Schaller has probably the finest church growth library ever written in the whole world. He lives in Naperville. He has been to our church a number of times. He's a great friend to Pastor Dale and to anybody who's ever met him. He wrote a book on denominations, and here's what he says in the book. He says that as a denomination ages, it tends to move more from chair number one to chair number three. It tends to move from a movement to an organization to a bureaucracy. It tends to become bureaucratic, and its theology tends to become more liberal. 
Because you want more and more people under the tent. Because who that leads a denomination, who is it that doesn't want more people? Obviously, everybody does. And they want more churches. And to do that, you have to compromise, compromise, compromise. And you change from chair number one to chair number two. And some are in chair number three today. I came from the American Baptists. They clearly had moved from chair number one to chair number two, all in the name of tolerance. The United Methodists, which is Lyle's denomination, is clearly fighting that same battle. It's one of the largest denominations ever, ever in the history of the United States. And today the United Methodists lose 50,000 members per month. In case you're calculating, 600,000 a year leave that church. You say, well, Conrad, why? Answer, the folks who lead these denominations tend to have left chair number one and try to lead the denomination from chair number two. Compromise, compromise, compromise. What happens to families happens to denominations, but also what happens to denominations happens to institutions. Ever hear of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale? Any of you have a son or a daughter, or did you go to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale? Anybody? What do you know about Harvard, Princeton, and Yale? You tell me. What do you already know just by reputation? Tell me what you know. Highly intellectual? What else? Very liberal? Yes. What else? Expensive. Thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. That's what all of us dads were thinking. Yeah, expensive. Let me tell you the interesting thing about all three of them. They were all started as Bible schools. They were started by Christians who were simply inventing an institution to teach the Bible to their, to their sons who were going to go into the ministry. That was the purpose of these. They were all Bible schools, believe it or not. Harvard, on its, on its original Application forms would say, give us your Christian testimony. (laughs) Can you imagine somebody even putting on there that they're a Christian, much less their testimony? How far do you think that would get them with Harvard today? You know that Princeton, it was required when they first started for the first 25 years. It was required that you study Greek and Hebrew. Why? So that you could study the Bible in its original languages. And at Yale compulsory chapel, five days a week, all four years of your study. If you missed three in any semester, if you missed three chapels, you were expelled automatically. A few years years ago in the Harvard Review, they printed the results of an interesting survey. Here's what the survey said. It only had one question. They gave it to all the professors at Harvard University, and they said, do you believe in a God? Now, that's not a tough question. It's it's pretty broad. You believe in any kind of God. If you've got a pet rock that you believe in, just anything, believe that there is a God. Answer, 97%, clearly, no. Sitting. What began as a Bible school is sitting, at least in the professor's minds, in chair number three, in absolute conflict with God. Now what happens to families happens to denominations and what happens to denominations happens to institutions and here's the scariest one. 
What happens to institutions also happens to countries. There is a progression with, and I am surely in that older category, so I loved victory in Jesus a few minutes ago. I was speechless. Those of us who get older, and and the, the good news is, God is sending plenty of little replacement parts. If you want, little Ryan is going to replace us one day. And all of your little grandchildren and mine are going to be perfectly capable of doing better than we did. But the fascinating thing that happens is, I don't know whether it's just old age or whether it's true. I'm really concerned about the world that I'm leaving to my grandkids. I won't spend a lot of time ranting over the difficulties that we face, but I would tell you that this generation faces more temptation to sit in chair number three than any previous generation born in America. Well, if all of that makes sense to you, if you can remember the three chairs, then let me give you three very simple applications. First, I think everybody sits in one of these chairs. I think everybody is in chair number one, number two, or number three, and you're in one of those chairs today. Now, in a moment of um, honesty, (laughs) because it's hard to be publicly honest, I know what it's like to sit in this chair. See, I'm sure that since I'm on the stage doing the preaching, you expected me to clearly say that I'm always in this chair. But I want to be honest enough with you to admit that I am all too well acquainted with this one. A little bit of God and a whole lot of the world. The second thing that I think is true about this is that the natural progression is this direction. It's very rare. For example, I think the toughest job on a church staff these days is the director of student work. I think it's the toughest job for a simple reason. The kids who are exposed to the most temptation, who find it the hardest to sit in chair number one, they're the ones we're trying to bring to church. Billy Graham's organization says that 90% of all the conversions in the United States are made before, before the age of 12. That if you wait until a child is a teenager, the chances are only 10% that they'll ever accept Christ because they are already so desperately committed to chair number three. I think we all sit in one of these chairs. And the natural progression in generations is if grandma and grandpa sit in chair number one, then mom and dad sit in chair number two. And the kids and the grandkids sit in chair number three. I have come from California not to bring the heat, but a question. It's a question that will make all the difference in the world. Which chair are you sitting in today? Any of you remember, as I do, as a child playing musical chairs? Probably the most famous chair game I think I ever remember. 
Musical chairs was where somebody started music. In those days, it was a record player. I guess today they use um, DVDs. But anyway, all the kids get in a circle, and we just start walking around these chairs. Now, the interesting thing is there are more kids than chairs. (laughs) And so everybody's in the game. Everybody's having a good time. You're all walking around and around and around, waiting for the music to stop, because when the music stops, you have to grab a chair, and if you didn't get a chair, you're out of the game. When you are out of the game, you can go sit in the corner, you can go home, you can, um, you can applaud the others, you can do whatever you want to, but you are out of the game. It is over. If, you're, if you really have an inferiority problem, you put a big L on your face. You, you lost. Game over. Nobody wanted to be the loser in the game. It seems to me that what life is really about is musical chairs. And that God's the one playing the music. And one of these, and for some of us, sooner than later, one of these days, the music is going to be stopped by Him. And whatever chair you find yourself in will make the difference for eternity. The great news is you can change chairs today. Anybody want to change chairs? If so, let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, there are some of us who are grandparents who need to change chairs. Sir, if the music were to end today, if you were to just stop one heartbeat and the music were to end, we would be sitting forever in the wrong chair. Our kids have watched. Our grandkids have taken note. And Father, wherever we sit, we've set the example for them. And so I pray for every grandparent in the room that more than anything, what our kids need is not another toy, but a great example. A man after God's own heart is what they need. And so I pray for the man or the woman who wants to change chairs. Father, many of us have little ones in our homes as parents on a daily basis. And you might fool the rest of the world, sir, but we can't fool you and we can't fool the kids. They see us every day. So, Father, some of us as parents need to change chairs. To be a man or a woman after God's own heart, more than anything else, more than being successful, more than being rich, more than being smart, need to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. To do that, we need to change chairs. Father, maybe as I met an adult last night who never had an example, grew up in foster homes, never had an example of a godly grandparent or a parent. 
But the good news is she and anyone here could still change chairs. Father, if there's a boy, a girl, a teenager, a mom and dad, or a grandparent who wants to change chairs, I pray that you will anoint them. By your Holy Spirit, give them the courage to say yes to you and no to everything else. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Father, make this commitment for the rest of our lives to be and to live in the chair of commitment. For we pray in Jesus' name.